This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Um, so today we're looking at the question of um, social change. That's kind of like where we are in our rubric is servant leaders connected to the idea of having some sort of concrete impact for social change in the world. It's not just like ideas and like happy circles that we sit in, um, but the idea is to actually be able to implement this. Um, and we were looking at that within context of the question of what does it take, um, what are the hard considerations and what are the limitations that we need to consider to serve and work our way through when enacting change, especially when it comes to um, engaging something that is forceful. What is um, an appropriate, a responsible, a practical um, reckoning of force when you need it? Um, so to start that, I thought I would open with this quote from Oscar Romero. It's from his book, The Violence of Love. A church that doesn't provoke any crisis, a gospel that does not unsettle, a word of God that does not get under anyone's skin, a word of God that does not teach the real sin of society in which it is being proclaimed. What gospel is that? Very nice, pious considerations that don't bother anyone. That's the way many would like preaching to be. Those preachers who avoid every thorny matter so as not to be harassed, so as not to have conflicts and difficulties, do not light up the world they live in. Um, so we thought that was a good kind of guiding question about how to engage um, force. And the reason why we think this is really important is because we're talking about servant leadership this semester and we're exploring it in the world of human conflict. Um, so we're kind of looking at the horizon which groups come together um, and clash, sometimes forcefully. And the thing about being a prophet that we talked about earlier is that prophets not only um, rise up in situations of conflict, but they bear a message about change. And that's one that's not often nice to be received. It's not well met. And so not only do they rise up in situations of conflict, but oftentimes their message and their presence is what generates conflict to begin with. And therefore, in order to be prophetic, we need to think responsibly um, through how to engage conflict ahead of time, because if that's part of the mission, we need to be responsible with engaging it. Um, so for today, we're going to look at how to go about pursuing concrete change um, when engaged in work that creates conflict um, and sometimes responds to violent conflict and how to ethically kind of look at that. Um, we're gonna be looking at two um, historical figures who've worked as part of movements that have had a concrete impact on reshaping the world um, around them. And though never fully realized, the work has marked historical turning points. So there is an aspect of concrete change, but then there's also the question of how you go about engaging that concrete change. And I think the important thing to look at is not just theoretically, but how that plays out historically. It's not just to have an idea about what we're committed to, but also to recognize the historical context, the situations, the parameters, the opportunities, and the limitations which they hold for our ability um, to move and the options and places to navigate that are available to us. Um, so the two figures that we're looking at, um, they have varied methods. One of them was nonviolent, and one engaged violence through use of force. And the goal for today is not to discern who was right, but to examine the factors, the realities, and the context that shaped the situations they were engaged in and the opportunities 
options that were available to them. Um, it raises the reality that in asking how to pursue change, there's not really a standard answer that we can always put into every situation. So we need to think through how to start reckoning with the demands um, that are presented to us. And it makes us ask the hard questions of ourselves as servant leaders, trying to respond prophetically to the conflicts of our experience and our world, and how do we try to reckon with the, the question of, um, of violence. I think it's also important to recognize there's not only the historical factors and the context, because that is really the parameters of everything we operate in, it's also the roles that we hold and how is the difference between being um, a person, being part of a community, and being a representative and a leader change the different demands and the ways we think through these things. Is what I do as an individual the same thing that I can do when I'm re representing other people? And I think um, the heart of it is the question of how do we individually, as people sitting in this room, start responding to that? Like, what do you do if you think about it? Um, and I like, invite you to think about it. Like, when you're at home and someone enters into your house, what's your reaction? Like, what do you do? How does that change if it's not you who's kind of like um, the target of potential like violence, but what happens when it's your little sibling, someone that you care about, someone that you love? What happens when you're not necessarily directly involved in it, but you're watching something play out? And how does that kind of change depending on whether it's an individual level or a larger communal level? Um, so those are some of the questions that we're looking to raise today. Okay, so I'm here to kind of um, bring out and talk about our first example of the way to explore this idea of where our prophetic call, right, our gospel call, interfaces with conflict on this semester's theme within that, that social uh, plane, right, on the social political elements between groups, between nations, between citizens and groups. Um, our first example is going to be coming out of the context in the history of South Africa and apartheid, which even if we talk the entire service council, we could not do full justice to, but just setting up that as the context, just understanding that after World War II in 1948, apartheid was set up as institutional segregation and the discrimination and violence that followed that uh, actually continued to escalate in the years that followed. By the time there's 1970, um, all African or black members of South Africa were their citizenship was kind of revoked and the right to vote was even revoked. So throughout the last half of the 20th century, you're seeing this apartheid uh, as institutional violence in many ways, because if people were actually to act on or try to reinforce their own human dignity or those in favor of them, um, it was put down rather violently or um, in such a way that is, is nothing short of oppression. So, um, as we come to the, the end of the 1980s, you, you see throughout that entire period that there's always internal struggles and conflicts, just much like our own understanding of the civil rights movements or, or, or um, uh, anti-slavery movements, uh, all struggles, right, that are, that are voicing of the prophetic, the prophetic call um, for human dignity, for healing, because if we go back to Greenleaf's idea of what a prophet is, right? What's the prophet? A prophet is the person 
whose idea, if implemented, is a means to healing, right? A means to healing. So out of this context, we see that um, leaders of the Ash African National Congress and so forth during this period, like particularly Nelson Mandela, had to face down, what do we do in response to this, this violence, this institutional and structural violence, this negation of human dignity? Do we actually embrace violence? Um, or do we take the peaceful path moving forward? Um, they continually made the choice um, to be a peaceful movement through all that. And there's a lot of factors today we'll hopefully unpack to help us understand a little bit more why that was even an option or why that was the, 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 the best option to kind of take. Um, we'll discuss in our, in our discussions. But um, shortly after the Cold War ends and the tensions between the capitalist West and the communist kind of East or Eastern Europe, kind of that breaks apart and the dimensions that kind of held the political um, relations and international relations of the world in these two categories for such a long time um, uh, ended. Uh, South Africa, people were able to turn to South Africa because the, the communist uh, movements were also in the Soviet Union were trying to spread throughout all of Africa as well, and the United States was, and the West and NATO were trying to counteract that, so there's these tensions, but when that ends, then they're able to, the West and um, the United Nations and so forth can turn their attention to sort of structural and institutionalized violence that's been taking place in other places, particularly South Africa. So why am I mentioning that? Because the entire time while there's internal struggles that are going on, while there is violence, while there are deaths, while there is, um, a great deal of issues going on, and the decision is still to remain peaceful and nonviolent through that process as much as possible by the leaders um, of, of the black um, Africans, uh, South Africans. Um, you see that it's when international pressure was also brought to bear that things really start to accelerate and change. Um, even the tensions and kind of uh, violence that um, in that process of negotiations from 1990 to 1993 to end apartheid, there was still a great deal of violence. Um, there was sort of even um, black on black violence, the black on the white violence, and that helped in some ways to really bring, even accelerate the issue and what needed to be done. To the point where you get 1994, where there's free and open elections because now there's universal suffrage. Everyone now has the right to vote, and so, the majority of South Africans can now have a government that's represented themselves that can protect and promote their own dignity and needs. So out of that though, at that point in history, you have something that is really, really challenging and tenuous, this transition from one oppressive regime to another. And you see in history, there's this tendency for the oppressed to become the oppressors. With South Africa, Nelson Mandela made a different choice. They made a choice that we want to highlight as something to be held up as an example and something very, very powerful to look at and to have as a witness. And Nelson Mandela asked when he was president for Des, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who had been very active through this entire period, and we can't necessarily go into that, um, to come out of retirement, to not retire, and to head up uh, the government's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And so what we want to look at is the fact that this was a choice to approach social justice from an angle of restorative justice as opposed to punitive justice, right? Restorative justice is looking at models of reconciliation, 
of healing, of an idea of justice as right relationship. And there's a different idea of the human person built into that, right, that our faith calls us to. If we understand ourselves truly to be brothers and sisters, to be part of one mystical body that is referred to as the body of Christ, then that interconnection is something that we cannot deny and that we need to work within and recognize as a part of who we are as human beings and what we need to flourish fully as human beings. Restorative justice is a means to that. And there's gonna be, we're going to show a YouTube clip that will unpack a little bit about the process that took place um, during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Desmond Tutu's role in it. And there's some, very, there's some key things I hope you hone in on that we'll, we'll kind of unpack as we come on our way out. But, but what's so novel, right, is it's different than punitive justice. It's not this idea that justice is um, basically paying your debt, but in order to pay your debt, we're actually going to, and we would never acknowledge this in the United States, but paying the debt means we're going to have more suffering. Now you have to suffer, we're gonna punish you in order for this justice to be done, right? So there's this individual idea, this deadness um, idea of what justice is that takes out the idea of our, 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 um, what it means to be reconciled and healed and a fuller humanity, a fuller human being and human experience coming out of conflict, coming out of violence. So that's, that's where a prophetic call asks us to go. Right? And today we're going to explore that, and we're also in our second part led by Irene going to explore why that's an exceptionally challenging thing. But in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we see nonetheless that even though it is a hard choice, it is one that ultimately leads to the greater, higher good, and, the, and because it's based um, on the fact that, as Desmond Tutu says, you know, this is a moral universe, and justice is always unfolding, and, and so the idea of justice and healing between um, oppressor, oppressed, victim, and offender uh, is something that ultimately brings the greater good and greater healing. <coughs> so if, um, is this booted up? You can pause it for a second until we get it going. <coughs> Hopefully you guys can see this. At the very least, we just want to pump up the volume. Desmond Tutu's contribution to South Africa did not stop here. He had plans to leave his home in Cape Town and retire to America and spend time with his grandchildren. But then, Nelson Mandela asked him to lead the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was a request that the Archbishop could not turn down. It heard from the victims on the project and heard the stories of the victims, which was an enormously emotional process. Nakhleen Mohapi was the first to take the stand. Her husband, Mapetla, died in custody 20 years ago. The authorities claimed it was suicide. I want help, she said. I want the truth because I know that my husband never killed himself. Desmond Tutu knew that without confronting the past, South Africa could not move forward. And he wanted to hear from all those affected by apartheid. Archbishop was very keen to hear, as he said, the stories of the little people, not necessarily the big famous stories about which there was already considerable evidence, but stories of people in small towns, in faraway places, whose suffering had been ignored for so long. Mary Burton worked with Desmond Tutu throughout the commission and sat with him through all her testimonies. It was an enormous task. There were altogether um, 
those are 22,000 statements made to us in those years. And then he fell down on the pavement and he died about half an hour later. It was often very heartbreaking, the sheer magnitude of the suffering and the repeated stories and the fact that so many people had been ignored and suffered in silence for so long. I think everybody who was part of the Truth Commission was changed by it to some extent. Desmond Tutu himself was deeply affected by the stories he heard. He responded within the first day or two by breaking down at one stage. And after that, he got upset with himself and discussed with Leia and said, this shouldn't be about me. This should be about the victims. I'm going to take attention away from the victims. I'm going to control my emotions. And after you would see him biting his hand like that when he was getting emotional to, to ensure that the focus remained on the victims. The Holy Spirit calmed the turmoil within. The Commission was a government initiative and not overtly religious, but the fact that the Archbishop was the chair did have a significant influence. We discussed in the Commission's meeting whether the Archbishop should wear his purple robes at the hearing. And the majority view was that he shouldn't. And we said so really quite strongly, this is not a religious commission. And the Archbishop listened to all of these arguments, and then he said that the people wanted. And he was quite right. The people, particularly the victims who were testifying, whether they were Christian or not, they wanted to shake his hand, they wanted to be touched by him. His presence was important to them. And his purple robes lent a solemnity to the occasion that I think was very important. So he had that sense of what people wanted and what people needed and what he could give to them. Despite the fact that terrible crimes were being recalled, Forgiveness, something at the heart of Christianity, was central to the Commission's aims. The reason Beltre for this commission is opening wounds, cleansing them so that they do not fester, and saying we have dealt with our past as effectively as we could. We have not denied it. We have looked the beast in the eye. I think we, know, we all learned a great deal during the commission about forgiveness, about how you reach it, about the fact that most people don't reach it, um, about the fact that even if you do it once, you actually have to, in a way, keep on, on and on forgiving if you want to be healed and be sane uh, after terrible suffering. One of the things that the Archbishop made very clear was the fact that uh, Forgiveness is not easy. Um, and you often say that you, you are in love with your wife. You do something wrong, and even in the privacy of your bedroom, it is hard to say, I'm sorry. And here we are asking people publicly, in the glare of television cameras, to say sorry for a very horrendous deed. And the Archbishop was just trying to show that forgiveness is not cheap. You led the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You've got those people who've been tortured, 
to face those people who had done the torturing and presided over tremendously difficult stories. Yes, so everybody, even just that incredible, what an incredible privilege, uh, sitting and presiding and, and, and really being humbled by the incredible magnanimity, the generosity of space. Forgiveness. When you sat in that Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you hear your own people sobbing and telling you stories of their own torture, of the loss of their loved ones. How do you start? How, how do you tell somebody how to start to forgive? Well, we didn't, we didn't have to tell them. Uh, we, as I say, had the privilege of sitting there and listening to the stories. Uh, and, and people generally moved on because there is something therapeutic about telling your story. It, it's, it's that you are, you are being acknowledged. You are not a cipher. You are someone. And that, that, that is something that says, yes, the suffering that you underwent was not just something that took into the sky. It contributed to the freedom we are now enjoying. All right. Okay, well, there, there's, hopefully that gives you a good glimpse into a lot of what was going on in the heart of what was there. I just want to pull out a few ideas to take with us before we bring something else into kind of contrasting. So you see that there's, there's still tremendous wounds, right, after the, after the decades of structural institutionalized violence, racism, discrimination, to outright violence, right? And that those wounds would fester and that ultimately they would may lead and probably would lead, according to their estimations, right, to more conflict, more violence, uh, more injustice, and ultimately more of a, a denial of the sanctity of human life and dignity and all of that. All of that's going, that's lost. That's lost. But in order to, to actually affirm, promote, and try to heal right human beings, that it's important for us to actually take on the hard challenge of forgiveness, right? Because reconciliation, the, the Latin roots to it, actually mean to look eyelash to eyelash, right? So to be able to look into the window of someone's soul means you've got to be good with one another in order to do that authentically, right? And there's a challenge and a vulnerability on our own part in that, in that piece where we expose ourselves as much as to the other. And, and some, some of the things I wanted to pull out that were really crucial is the power of stories, right? The, the need for people to tell their stories. The fact that they focused on, we want to hear from the little people, right? That Desmond Tutu is saying, but more or less, what are these? That, right, the least, in, in, in the gospel, talks about the least of our brothers and sisters, those who are the most marginalized and most forgotten, those whose suffering is never brought into account, and maybe even on the political stage, absolutely has absolutely no weight, because they're not really persons, right? They're not even acknowledged as full members of society. But what I found so fascinating about it is, is that not only was it necessary for them to, t for, for 20,000, 22,000 people to give statements of an account, um, for their, they had the bravery to bring this forward 
um, and just sort of state the matter of fact, but not necessarily, I, I don't know how many engaged in outright accusations and tried to reignite some conflict, but to, to put that out there um, was a part of what they needed for their healing. But what's interesting is it's also a part of what, on the social sphere, right, our greater macro sense of our interconnectedness, our communal relations, our communal sense of identity, for South Africa to be healed as a nation, for the institutions to go on um, doing the very best they could to deal with the past, those stories needed to take place publicly. The truth needed to be confronted out in the open in the air so that it was acknowledged on the social, political, communal scale, right? So even for personal healing, that was something that was necessary. And another thing that was really significant that um, I think I, I pulled out of that and I think we should hone in on is that it was a government um, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, agenda operation initiative. And Desmond Tutu was kind of asked not to wear his clerical robes because it was government, right? We're not going to bring religion necessarily into this. And everyone kind of felt that way. Yes, let's not bring religion into this political ordeal. Um, and we have that same kind of thinking in, in our own country for good reasons or ill. But what he comes back and he says, that, well, the people wanted it. So there's this recognition of something that we talked about in September about um, the nature of a religious servant leader. And remember what, the, what, what religion broken down as a word was? Do you remember what that, the word was? What does it mean? To rebind. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there was, the people had a sense that their religious leaders needed to be there because something about religious institutions being at their very best is something that rebinds and heals us. And that a prophetic figure with prophetic ideas that come from these countercultural traditions that are so powerful that challenge us, like, like Tutu, right? That, that with those ideas, if they're implemented, it's really a means to healing. It's not easy, it's not over and done with, but it's an ongoing process. But nonetheless, the, the most justice was done so that um, right relationship could be restored. And that's not the typical way um, our nations or institutions address justice, right? Not restoring and rebinding and bringing us back into right relationship with one another. Um, so what we have is that, that is without a doubt um, uh, a, a benchmark in history of something that, that to be pointed to and looked to as an example of how to respond prophetically, right, in the midst of conflict. But there's also certain things that allow that to take place. Um, and so what we're going to do now is Jenna's going to help us transition a little bit into Irene, where we can take another look at what it means to have, respond to our prophetic call in the midst of conflict. Um, so basically, what we're doing today is looking at two figures, not just um, as figures, not just really about So a couple things that are to pull out of that, I think, to help illustrate this question and this example of the case study is the first is that um, they were going through a transition period in which they needed to confront the past and move forward. So um, 
Tutu was responding to the violence of a structure. Um, apartheid was violent not only in terms of physical violence, but also in terms of a structural sin, which oppresses and cut off people's ability to be fully human. So there's a structure of violence, and the end of apartheid creates a break in that structure, and a moment in which Tutu and the commission can move into it and decide whether they want to continue with that structure or reshape it in a different direction. Um, and so they chose to reshaping it by pursuing justice through healing and relationship with an emphasis on humanity and community rather than an emphasis on um, penalization, punity, and kind of a balanced system of accounting. Um, in making that shift, they decided that the primary need was to respond to suffering rather than to respond to the need for, to, um, for like a punitive justice. So the thought is that through attending to suffering, people feel a sense of justice because the healing is done not only on an individual, but a communal level in the public space. So what happens is when they look at a broken structure and re-engage it in a new direction, they do so in terms of defining justice on the basis of restored relationships. Um, they've kind of restructured the heart of what, that of what their society um, holds as valuable. And it's important not only because it promotes healing, but also because the sense of restored relationship creates a sense of inner human connection. And it's in that sense of disconnection and isolation that it becomes easy to tolerate um, the violence that we do to one another. But the more we're connected, the more we see each other as people being integral to each other um, and our own humanity. So I think that's kind of what we'll, we'll tease out. Okay, all right, great. Um, I'm Irene. I don't know how I'm gonna attach this to me because I don't have like a pocket. So I, I, if I put it here, I'm sure I'm gonna walk away, it's gonna fall. So when that happens, you can laugh, it's okay. <laughs> um, let me see what I can do with this. Try that. I'm going old school with a few notes on newsprint. Um, I don't know if you guys can see it over there. Can you guys see it? It's, it's on that silver uh, bathroom thing. Do you want me to stand and hold it for you? No, I, well I just, not that one. Maybe the next one, because okay. that one only says who is Che Guevara. <laughs> All right, so um, I thought I would begin by telling you, well, by first asking you, how many of you have thought enough about the issues of when to use violence that you would consider yourself a pacifist, somebody who would never do something violent, no matter what was done to you? Have any of you thought enough through that to be able to make a stand? Who here would say there's a pa they're a pacifist? So we have at least one. It's a hard thing to think through, so don't be afraid. I'd be proud of it. <laughs> but you're not sure. Yeah, it's complicated. Um, how many people here definitely feel that there's a time when some kind of force might be needed and justified? OK, OK. All right. Well, to give you an idea of who I am, I started out uh, in college, and it was during the 80s when everybody was against the nuclear weapons, okay? So I was totally no nukes, you know, brought speakers to campus, um, worked for the peace movement, and definitely considered myself a pacifist. Um, I worked against the death penalty, and one of my favorite posters that I used to make was, why do we kill people to show people that killing people is wrong? Because again, I thought killing people is always wrong, even if it's the death penalty. You know, there's no case, no matter how bad somebody is, that they deserve to be killed by us. So I was a very strong pacifist. 
Then I go to Nicaragua in 1999 to see a former student who's in Jesuit Volunteer Corps. And I get to meet a bunch of people. And they had a very, very um, ugly war there, revolution. And I hear, a, I hear story after story of violence. And I mean violence like on this level. Um, a, a young man was captured by the guerrilla forces and his head was cut off and they played soccer with it. Okay, so not just killing people in self-defense, but I'm talking about some kind of brutality. You know, um, something that goes beyond anything you could think of as justifiable, a total and complete disregard for human life. And I kept hearing stories like this about what had happened during their war. And one day I was out walking work, uh, with someone who works with the kids who live on the street. He had a really big cross on. And he told me he had fought in the revolution. And I said to him, but you wear a cross. How, how did you reconcile the idea of killing people with the fact that you're a Christian? Didn't you think that that was wrong? And he said, you know, it's a luxury for you to be a pacifist because you don't have anybody with a gun to your family's head. And I never had thought of it in those terms before. It's a luxury, it's a privilege for me to say I'm a pacifist because it's easy. Because my, my government, my society is stable enough that I can take that position because I probably don't ever have to worry that that's gonna happen. So that night I called my parents. You know, people do call their parents even when they're 40. But I called my parents and I'm like, I don't think I'm a pacifist anymore. I think there might actually be times when, you know, there's a a just use of force, and they were really worried. They're like, oh my God, you're sitting in fatigues with a gun there, aren't you? What are you doing there in Nicaragua? They were so worried. But um, that has been something that's troubled me since then. So this was a hard talk when Jenna and um, Will asked me to do it because I struggle with this issue, this issue and to have to talk about Che um, was hard because of what you know, his history was like. So why don't we start, so now you know a little bit about me and, and where I am in this, pacifist who's questioning. Um, who was Che Guevara? Do you guys know who, just your first sort of impulses, like here's a, here's a big book that came out in the 90s, the 40th anniversary of his death. All right, big, big book, there's tons of them about him. There's buttons you can buy, there's t-shirts, Che, there we go, okay. Anybody know who he is? Cuban, right, that's, that's part of it. Part of it. He was a physician, yes, he was a doctor. From Argentina, perfect, got it. Okay. Oh. Guerrilla tactician, he wrote a book on guerrilla warfare. Yes, he did. Okay. Um, a lot of people think he's extreme. How many people would say you think he's violent? And that's, he was, there, there's aspects of that. But I wanna present him today as a very complicated figure. Okay? So um, just take this part off, yeah. I understand. Um, and then you can hang it there, because it's only simple. It's, the, it's more for me so that I, I remember what I'm going to tell you. So anyway, when he was a student, 
He was, a, he was like a middle class student in Argentina, um, very much like you guys and like I once was. And he went to med school, but during med school he went, he took like some time off and almost did a brake trip, <laughs> his version of a brake trip. How many people have seen the movie Motorcycle Diaries? Okay. What he did is he traveled around South America on a motorcycle with his best friend. And traveling that way, he, he talks about this in his, in his writings, he came into contact with minors, extremely poor people. He stayed for a while since he was in med school at a leper colony, helping out the doctors there. Um, he saw poverty at its worst. And there was so much of it and continues to be in South America, all of Latin America. Um, and he, would, he was converted to the poor, I would say, in the way that, uh, I think it's Romero talks about it. Romero or Sabrino? Can't remember which one. But converted to the poor. He, he was convinced that something needed to be done and it was an urgent need. So here's some quotes from him and here, this, this very violent person. Um, at the risk of sounding ridiculous, I believe that a true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. If you tremble with indignation at every injustice, then you are a comrade of mine. This is somebody I think I might like. Um, a real man should feel on his own cheek the blow inflicted on any other man's cheek. So the sympathy for the suffering of other people. So this is what drove him to want to do something to change the world. Um, he, and this is the way he analyzed what was wrong with the world, okay? How would you, in here, how many, what do you think the cause of poverty is here, if you had to say in a couple words? What, what, what's the cause of world poverty? Industry? Is that what you said? Yeah, I'm sorry, I might be deaf. <laughs> All right. Green selfishness? It's a hard one, I know, yeah. Oppression? Yeah. Oppression? Okay, yeah, that's right, I knew what you meant. Um, oh, so there you are, go ahead. Lack of education. Lack of education, okay. Disproportionate allocation of resources. Catholic Church talks about that. All right, he believed, like Gandhi, that poverty was the worst form of violence. So get your head around that concept for a minute. Here we're not talking about violence as hurting people with your gun or your hand. Here we're talking about hurting people through poverty. How does poverty hurt people? They're starving. They have no hope of getting out of like, the rock bottom that they're like. Right, they're hopeless. Right. Perfect. Right. Right. Through all these ways, right. Somebody else have a hand up? Just their medical health. Their medical, right. Exactly. 
Okay, so you're getting a sense of how poverty could be violence, how it could actually hurt people. Um, and Gandhi said it was the worst form of violence, and potentially because it's the most pervasive. Um, so what, Che had a different analysis of what causes poverty, though. Um, he didn't, he did think it was greed. You were right on that. Um, and he did think it was selfishness, but he put it under a big word called imperialism. Um, who knows what imperialism is? I'm giving you all these hard questions. What is, how do you solve poverty? What is imperialism? <laughs> Okay. Like imperialist countries set out to conquer other countries to use their resources to make their own economies better, like what England did with India or France or Algeria. Perfect. That's exactly right. Anybody want to add to that? Yeah. Um, I've heard people describe it as almost like raping other countries right. and taking their um, natural resources. Right. And leaving them behind. Right. Caitlin? Um, Right. So Che felt that imperialism was the cause of poverty. And by that, let me give you the example that was the example, one of the examples in his lifetime. And it was the case of Cuba, what was happening at Cuba, in Cuba at that time in the 1950s. Um, and this is what John F. Kennedy Jr., uh, not Jr., John F. Kennedy said, not his son, sorry, when he was president, about the situation in Cuba. He said it himself. At the beginning of 1959, United States companies owned about 40% of the Cuban sugar production. They owned almost all the cattle ranches, 90% of the mines, and 80% of utilities and they owned practically all of the oil resources in Cuba. In addition to owning all of what Cuba had as its natural resources, it also imported two-thirds of their products. So it created a dependency of this country on the United States, and by importing products, you're also importing culture. Um, so, I don't know if you've been to other countries, but if you go any place, let's say in Central America, you'll see a Sunoco and it'll say, on the run, like one of those little stores that's at the Sunoco where you get a Coke, on the run, or there's Pizza Hut, or there's Wendy's. That's us importing our culture, importing our businesses for our well-being as a country um, to make more money, rather than supporting their businesses and their companies. So that's what imperialism is. And Che felt very strongly that imperialism was the cause of poverty. And what was happening in Cuba was incredibly unjust. So he meets, he, he moves to Mexico and he meets Fidel Castro. Who's Fidel Castro? <laughs> this should be an easy one, right? All right, somebody. Put my glasses on because somebody's raising their hand. All right, Fidel. Perfect, okay. At the time though, he wasn't. He was a recent college graduate, got his law degree, was really upset with what was happening in Cuba because he thought it was incredibly unjust, just like Che did. 
and tried to run for public office and get democratically elected. And what happened? The elections get aborted and a coup takes over by a dictator named Batista. He decides, I don't want to go through this election process. I'm just going to use my military force. He was connected to the military. And I'm just going to make myself the president of Cuba. Um, so Fidel gets put into exile in Mexico, meets Che. It was the beginning of beautiful friendship. a beautiful friendship. <laughs> a friendship that was definitely going to change things. To make a long story short, they collaborated together. But Che, at this point, is still very concerned about poverty and wanting to change it. He agrees to go with Fidel to, to Cuba with Fidel's forces, but he's going to be the doctor. He's not a soldier. He's going to be the medic. But when he gets there and they go into battle and he sees his friends getting killed around him, that's the moment of his um, decision to change from just wanting to help with the medical end of things. And he takes up a gun. And that's when he became not just a revolutionary, but a revolutionary who uses, because I think he could be a revolutionary for sure um, and in a peaceful way, like Nelson Mandela um, and Tutu. But he takes up a gun because he sees that there's no way to make change in this country without taking up forces. That's, that's what he perceives as a reality. Um, so just so you don't think they were completely off the uh, continuum of like radical, John F. Kennedy again says this. I believe, this is about Cuba, right before the revolution. I believe there is no country in the world, and by that I mean all the countries under colonial domination, there's no country in the world where economic colonization, humiliation, and exploitation are worse than in Cuba. And in part owing to my country's, the US's, policies during the Batista regime. So he's taking some responsibility for why things aren't just in Cuba. Um, he, Batista had murdered, he says, 20,000 Cubans in seven years. He had taken what was a democratic country and created a police state, destroying individual liberty, so controlling the press, not allowing people to talk about uh, the dictator without being put in jail, without being tortured, without their bodies literally being hung from the telephone poles um, after they had been killed, to, to create a, a, a feeling of terror in the country. Um, and he says that the United States Spokesman publicly praised Batista, hailed him as a staunch ally and a friend at a time when he was murdering thousands and destroying the last vestiges of freedom. And we failed to press for free elections. We as the United States failed to press for free elections. Now, we're not always the bad guy, but he was saying in this situation, we were the bad guy. And one of the social critics at the time, Arthur Schlesinger, said this. He said, the conditions in Cuba, the brutality of the police, the, lack of, the indifference to the people's need for education, medical care, housing, is an open invitation for revolution. So they saw what was happening, what was, what was probably going to happen, um, just because of the conditions. And they thought 
Not that they supported it, but they thought it was a likely outcome. Um, so, to sum it up, they, they you know, um, over the course of three years, roughly three years, they engage in the revolution, they win, they take over the country. Che decides, uh, I don't want to be a bureaucrat. Um, I'll get the literacy campaign started. The first book he had published as the head of the literacy campaign was Don Quixote, because he would do readings of that when they were up in the mountains with the peasants who were the soldiers, because he thought it was so important for the people to be educated so that they could also be participants in the, in the government and the society once they did have freedom and once the revolution won. So all of this started out with the best of intentions, but as some people and you know, as Christians, we may say this went terribly, terribly in the wrong direction because people were killed. Um, so the three questions I would say, I, well, just the end of his life, he died at 39 in Bolivia. He was helping with the revolution there. He was murdered by um, Bolivian forces that were backed by the US, well, CIA forces. So, um, because he was seen as a threat, you know, because he was good at this, unfortunately. So he saw, in his mind, with all his concern for humanity, that it was, and he thought it was legitimate to take up arms. So this leaves me with questions. Well, first, an observation. We belong to a church. I didn't talk about, oh, just war. Oh, no problem. Um, we can potentially talk about that. I don't know how much time we have. Um, but we belong to a church in a country that's more like Che than Tutu, really. We take up arms to achieve what we want in many situations. We think that's legitimate. We belong to a church that in some ways has, has also taken up arms um, in the past, but supports a policy that I think we need to look at of just war that in some cases it is okay to go to war. And I'm gonna pass around what they say, what our church says um, is the criteria. I didn't mean to wake you up. <laughs> um, the criteria for, um, for engaging in violence. And what's really significant about this is that we it started uh, with the thought of Augustine and then was developed further by Aquinas. Um, and then the US bishops wrote about it and then they even included it in the Catholic catechism that came out. Um, what, it was under John Paul II, right? The new catechism? I have a copy of it, don't you? I know I do, somewhere, but anyway. Um, so, to go over this in a really quick way, if you're gonna do something in a just way to engage in war, there has to be a just cause. So it can't be to punish people, sort of like when Will was talking about Desmond Tutu. You know, you don't go to war and then punt and, um, to, to hurt all the people who had tortured other people, you know, in revenge. You don't do that. Um, innocent life must be an imminent danger and there must be an intervention to protect life. So there has to be a just cause. Comparative justice, there has to be, if you have to weigh the two sides, 
there's greater potential for life lost on this side than there is on this side, so you want to protect the greatest number of people. Um, a competent authority, you don't want just some random group of people deciding they're going to go to war. You want it to be um, a legitimate authority. In the case of the Cuban Revolution, there was no legitimate authority. The dictator had taken power um, illegally, so I think all bets were off on who was a competent authority in that situation. Um, right intention, probability of success, so not undertaking something you know is going to be um, end in disaster. Like if we had known what was going to happen with the Vietnam War, I don't think we would have gone into it. Um, and force must be used as an absolute last resort for it to be considered just. You must have exhausted every other way of resolving the conflict. Um, and then there's a few other categories. And the second part of it here is, if you do engage in war, how should you do it? Um, that you can look over yourself. But I thought it was important that you at least had this, so you saw the thought that went into deciding. So a question this brings up for me is, should our church be a pacifist church? based on the witness of Jesus. That's the church I thought I belonged to until I learned more about just war theory when I was younger. I thought it was a pacifist church because of Jesus. But it, so that's always been a question I've struggled with. Um, so I think I'll leave it there and turn it over to Jenna to facilitate some questions or discussion. Sound good? Okay. That's a hard act to follow. <laughs> Just ask a lot of questions. I know, right? Um, so basically what we wanted to do for our, a quick second is just draw out some of the similarities and differences in the context between Tutu and Che. Um, because um, what we've kind of done is held up stereotypical like good guy, bad guy images. And we kind of did that as a false dichotomy because the whole thing is that they're operating under very different circumstances, which kind of... Um, put different options, perimeters, restrictions on the way in which they can move forward. So we talked a little bit about the overarching things um, with South Africa moving out of apartheid. A couple of things I think to note, looking at Cuba and the revolution there, um, Che said that revolutionaries don't create violence. They're responding to a violence that already exists with the burden of figuring out how to interrupt it. So Che was also like Tutu responding to a structure of violence death, poverty, oppression, fear, torture, um, imperialism. However, there was no break in the structure that Che was trying to engage. He was looking at a violence that has played out and that continued to play out within a structure that was overarching and pervasive. So whereas Tutu saw the end of apartheid and a gap to be um, filled, Che is looking at something that is ongoing and all-encompassing and trying to figure out how to interrupt it. And so he's faced with the reality of disrupting the structure from within instead of redefining structure during a period of transition. And he has to look carefully at the reality of a brutal structure and reckon with the question of how to disrupt violence um, and repression and how to navigate the use of potential force in there, knowing that um, lives are currently being lost. Tutu was also in a situation where there had been a lot of death, but that had kind of um, come to an end in the moment with the end of um, apartheid, it was how to reclaim and restore people's lives moving forward. Che is looking at a situation where people are currently dying 
um, and how do you navigate the question of what is an acceptable loss of life um, and, and how do you define that for other people. Um, so a couple just key contrasts. Both were working against overarching structures of violence. Both were acting not only as individuals, but also as a member and a protector of a community, which places different burdens and considerations on their question of engagement. Both were responding to the felt needs of their community, but Tutu was responding to a violence that had occurred, um, and Che was looking at a violence that was continuously occurring. Um, not to oversimplify the situation, which I just oversimplified. Um, Tutu was creating a new structure over and against a previous one, while Che was looking at interrupting the current structure. Um, Tutu was responding to suffering from lives already lost, whereas Che was surrounded um, by the constant presence of death throughout the um, process. Um, and so the reason why we bring that up isn't to put one up as like the right way or the wrong way, or to come to a determination about them, but I think to raise the question of what is the reality that which we're contending and how does um, history and context matter every time in looking at that reality and what are the different roles that we play and have to navigate um, when coming to those kind of decisions. Um, so, do you guys have any initial thoughts, questions, statements to offer? Um, I'm just really glad you brought that up because I was like, oh, well, there are different situations completely. So, you know, thanks for bringing up the other side of the story. There are also different uh, sides to it. I have had a teacher here, who's still a teacher. She's like 85 years old, and she's from originally from Cuba. And her name is um, Estrella Ogden. And she worked as Che Guevara's secretary for 10 years. And she would like talk on the phone with um, like really big, crazy people like Castro and things. And um, she got out like right before Castro took over because her family had money. But like, if you ask her, like, what do you think about what's going on with Cuba? She's like, oh, they know what they're doing. Everything's great up there. Like, it's treating everybody awesome. Like, I wish I could vacation there and all this stuff. And you're like, okay. You know, but like, there's a lot of different viewpoints. You have to see it. Like, from the people who were around him, she looked up to him. And she was like, oh, he's a great man. He died too young. They destroyed him in Bolivia. It was unfair and all this stuff. But, like, Sitting there, standing with him, you might get a different perspective than just like, oh, he was horrible because of blah, you know? Like, looking back, it's different than being in the moment. He did say those wonderful things, um, but he also said, you know, essentially you have to be a killing machine in order to, in his guerrilla warfare manual, um, in order to overthrow a government. So he did say some things that are horribly brutal and violent. So. It's a, it's a really complicated picture. Um, in his book, too, the guerrilla warfare, like, I like the way he wrote. Like, he wrote straight to the point, and he talked about how um, how during the war, you know, it's not like the difference between like a terrorism group and like just like a group of bandits and uh, being like a, a guerrilla, like part of the guerrilla army, is that uh, bandits, you know, yes, they're against the government, 
but that they're not for the people either. They're kind of looking out for their self-interest. And he said, like, as a guerrilla, like part of the guerrilla's people's army, you know, you have to be uh, listening to the people and what the people response. And a lot of his guerrilla warfare tactics evolved around, like, knowing the community and knowing when, like, people were injured, like, that they could take them to the person's homes. And it had to do with, uh, you know, what was uh, favorable ground versus unfavorable ground. So, but um, he talked about like uh, the people a lot in the warfare. I think that's why he's sort of a figure for so many people of inspiration, and then for other people of like art, is because he did have some really good ideas and principles, but also this other side. Yeah, um, I was just gonna say also I think it's a big deal that we should see how others see us, especially today in this country. Um, like my mom's Bolivian, mm -hmm. and when she like was going to school, she's like, I never want to go to America. They kill all the Indians, they kill all the black people, they're horrible people. How can they do that? And all this stuff. And they like it was like he, she was completely against the, us, you know. I mean, to see like other countries how they see us, how they see our history, how they see whether we have just let let the poison in the wound sort of, you know. Of, people in the past, we have to see like how uh, other people might see us and how um, we impact their lives, even if we aren't always conscious of it. I was going to say, it's interesting that you brought up imperialism because a lot of the Latin American countries see uh, the conquest, like not just from the Spanish and Portugal or British, like as the first conquest, but then there was a the second conquest, and that was the United States. And at first, the United States tried to do it politically, socially, and economically, like sending troops to El Salvador to protect their interests, which were a lot of businesses and stuff. You see it in Panama politically with the bombings, and you see it in a lot of different like Latin American countries that they send like CIA operatives or um, different stuff. So that was like, but slowly, you know, uh, people stood up against that, and that's been taken away. But economically, the U.S. still has uh, a huge. Uh, like even with NAFTA, which is supposed to be seen as you know a great like free trade agreement, still has a dependency on U.S. trade and uh, exports, like for a lot of other countries. I didn't mean to paint the U.S. as a terrible <laughs> place, although in this situation there were critical elements of it. But I agree with you on what you're saying. Um, it does have a very messy history in this atmosphere. Still is. Yeah. And the Cold War complicates a lot of that. Those, those are some, there's a lot of atrocities and, and things that um, the United States were taking part in the rationale, kind of protecting the free world. And I grew up in some of that, and my family and dad, I understand that that changes a lot of the dynamic that if you aren't raised with threat of a nuclear bomb coming off, you know, tomorrow potentially, that you don't necessarily understand how that changes the way the politics work. And there are a lot of things that are done um, as a result of uh, and in the context of that Cold War. But I, that's not to excuse or necessarily even try to explain fully. But that's definitely a strong factor that we think about enough when we look at how the U.S. is tied in a lot of things we've brought up so far in this semester. And I think it plays out not just on an international scale, but like in our own individual experiences, um, which is something that we really wanted to look 
because I think it's really easy to say like, oh, Jay, like, and like, oh, like, not my, like, yeah, you know. Um, but I think that sometimes those are very, like, easy things to fall into without having to really reconcile, like, what does it mean to take those positions? Um, and how do different situations cause to act in different ways even though we might not necessarily have ever imagined ourselves going down that path. And I think something that's really interesting um, was just at a lecture recently, what I mean, um, and it was this military ethicist talking. And basically he was talking about how um, nonviolence and pacifism, um, you know, there's, like we were talking about prophets, like to be prophetic, to invite conflict, and to invite violence into your life and your experience, and to be able to recommend own that um, as a decision that you're committed to, and how, you know, not a commitment to nonviolence um, to the end of martyrdom is one of like the hardest and most like noble things that you can do. But it has to be an individual decision because it has to be something that you own. Otherwise, it's sacrifice or slaughter. It's not martyrdom or you know commitment to nonviolence. That that comes with a decision and an integrity behind that decision. And so that's only something that can really play out on an individual level because only an individual and yourself can decide if that's where your commitment is. So. While you might be committed on an individual level to certain ideals, what happens then when you become responsible for other people? When you're the leader and representative of the community, you can't necessarily decide for that community um, in favor of a nonviolence that leads to death because that's not a choice for them. There's like there's people who do not decide do not have the ability about kids to make that decision, and then in that case, what you know, are you working with a situation of of um, Sacrifice or slaughter. And so he brought up the idea of also the duty to protect when you're responsible for a larger community and their well being. And he actually pulled on Augustine to talk about it in terms of um, the duty to protect as a responsibility to charity. Um, and, and where is Christian charity kind of carved out of space for, um, for that kind of uh, protection as well? So it's just the idea that it's complicated and I think it like brings really nicely um, with a uh, quote that I already pulled out uh, from Derek Jensen. Uh, um, and he says that every morning, even my normal access, he says, every morning when I wake up, I ask myself whether I should write or blow up a dam. I tell myself I should keep writing, though I'm not sure that's right. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have ever kind of like felt a similar struggle you know, depending on to what degree, the question of how do you witness, testify, engage, act, or respond to something um, in hopes of actually making an impact. We start this challenge today, challenging kind of discussion in some way, or it's going to have to reach a resolution with. It's somewhat the point, in a way, to, do, to, to be responsible to the complexity, right? Because what we tend to do here is we really do, especially espousing at our Christianity at the university, hold up the violence of Jesus as a model. Um, but there, it's not just always as easy as that. It's what one group is saying. We have to resist the idea of fetishizing nonviolence. If it's just a thing to do and recognize, and sometimes it comes out of a place of you know, privilege. We have the privilege of having a certain context that allows us that option. Not to say that we wouldn't choose for ourselves still to be nonviolent, but to look at the realities that are there. 
in some ways, it's very difficult for us in the lives to connect with by a therapist in our country that do it every day. And so I think that if there's one thing I want to leave out there, and this too is something that's broader than it just communicates, but I think it's powerful. Um, I was at a speaker recently, which is Derek Jensen, I was on the panel, another one was um, this gentleman, George Lakey, whose group was the one that was supposed to be leading us in our workshop two Fridays ago, but that didn't, didn't work out. It's a non-violence training workshop. And down at Swarthmore College, they've done a database of all of this non-violent histories. And there's these um, uh, academics who have done a study of all of the recorded regime changes in history. Um, how many were successful given non-violent means versus violent means? Um, do you guys want to take a guess at that? Like, even percentage-wise or whatever, which one's more? Um, the regime changed. So it, sometimes you can have movements that change a culture. The actual people in power are still the same individuals. They've just adapted, right? But this is a this is a, a regime change. That's the bottom line. And you're looking in terms of percentages. Well, I'm just trying to find that. I don't think that violence is often, like frequently. Try to speak right? Yeah. And so. Any, okay. Anyone else? I think, see, that's more of the nuance we need to look at. But the statistic was is that when nonviolence was the need to change, say with Gandhi or, or even um, King was in a regime change, but um, it was successful 52% of the time. When violence was the, the actual action that led to a successful regime change, and I could be off by a percentage point or so here, but it's basically 23% of the time. So what we take out of that is not a really quick and simple nonviolence is always better, right? But I think even the people at the discussion panel are trying to say, this really does make an argument that you really got to give nonviolence a chance. But given the two scenarios we kind of played out today, you understand it's more complex than that, right? Is there the option for nonviolence? Uh, how often is it really tried? Is it are most of the needs for a full regime change in such unstable, unjust societies that it's only the extreme ends that really are used or able to be used. But that's, that's I guess my way of trying to add a little bit of encouragement to the end of this challenging question today is the sense that there are studies that show this is still the path to try to always choose. Um, and there's data behind that. So if we want to Sorry, Ash, had a question? Oh, I just wanted to chime in. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I do agree that nonviolence is always like an option that people can use, but you know, a lot of people want like, the fast way out. Um, just want you know to get the best way possible in order to achieve what they want. And um, you have the possibility to use nonviolence, but those who are usually in power or those who represent people sometimes manipulate, um, like justify using violence in order to get what they want. Um, uh, like we see those groups. It also depends on like what side you're in. Like for example, we see groups that have attacked US forces in Iraq as you know terrorists, these monsters, you know, suicide bombers, horrible people. But the other group sees them as almost like freedom fighters. And so it really depends on what side you're in. 
should we give our presentation to you? This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.